As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me a colleague, a friend, a real ally to so many. Her name is Susanna Barkataki. Susanna is a yoga practitioner. She is from India. She's in the Hatha Yoga tradition. She is really here to teach a yoga that helps us all become leaders. Uh, she's the founder of Ignite Yoga and the Wellness Institute. She is 500-hour certified yoga therapist. She runs 200 and 500-hour in-body yoga trainings. She has an honors degree, for all you smarty pants out there, in philosophy from UC Berkeley and a master's in education from Cambridge College. Other news, she's a badass. Susanna <laughs> is a diversity, accessibility, inclusivity, and equity educator, D-A-I-E, in case you left out the A. Here it is who inspires impactful yoga leadership. Her book is called Embrace Yoga's Roots, and we are here, I am here, specifically to cause a little bit of unrest, perhaps, in the yoga teachers' minds and hearts to help us all to see how we have appropriated, yikes, so much of the culture of yoga and how we can start to work our way out of that sort of behavior and into true allyship for the history of the practice, for the ancestors in the practice. So welcome, Susanna. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you, Elena, and mm -hmm. with all the folks who are listening. Thank you. I thought it might be appropriate to start with the dedication and the invocation that you have at the very beginning of your book, Embrace Yoga's Roots. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Let us embrace yoga's roots and honor our teachers together. I honor my teachers. I honor your teachers. I embrace all the elements, earth, water, fire, air, and space. I embrace the land and the sky and all of creation. I honor the yogis back through time and space. I honor my colleagues, friends, and co-conspirators on this path. I honor the students, known and unknown, whose lives will be touched by this work. May we embrace the roots of yoga so the tree of vast yogic wisdom can abundantly flourish. Welcome to this inquiry and practice. May it benefit you. May it preserve and uplift the practice and path of yoga now and for generations to come. May it benefit all beings. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. What a beautiful invocation, my dear. Um, I'm so thankful that you're here and thankful for your time here today. I think that uh, the best use of our time is to really talk about what 
propelled you to create this book, which I hold in my hands right now, Courageous Ways to Deepen Your Yoga Practice. Please tell us how this book came to, came to life. Ah, that was so lovely to hear the invocation read because as I wrote it, you know, I read it myself, but I didn't always always read it aloud or imagine it being read back, you know, into mm. the world. So thank you for that. Mm. I feel like this book came from an experience of really appreciating yoga asana and loving how much freedom and how much joy my asana practice gave me. But then also from my family background and history, knowing that there's so much more to yoga than just asana and, and kind of feeling like this is great, but there's so much more. And so if people, you know, in the yoga community in the West are like me having these benefits and this enjoyment and more kind of peace, more connection to our souls, more flexibility of mind, body, spirit. It's like, what would it be like if we all got to experience the full expanse of what yoga is? That was on the sort of positive side. And then on the more like, I don't know, like the, the howl from my soul side, that side is like, wow, the very people that this practice comes from are being sidelined and invisibilized and excluded. You know, and my family literally would come to me and say, Susanna, like, beta child, like, we don't, we can't, I can't go to a yoga studio. I don't belong. I don't belong. My aunt and uncle who are, you know, getting older now and uh, getting a little stiffer, they said, we want to go and practice some yoga, but, but we can't because we don't look like they live in Los Angeles. We don't look like people in the studios. And I thought, wow, you know, my aunt, especially and my uncle, they've embodied all of what yoga is and what it means through their entire lives and through my life and have taught me so much about yoga ethics and ritual and practice. And for them to say, I don't belong or I can't go or I can't practice, I was so saddened and angry and frustrated. And I also came to understand that they weren't alone, you know, that there is many people who feel like they don't belong or they're, they're left out of a yoga practice today. And many people who don't even feel like they can begin to practice. So the book came from that too, like wanting to, to bring up and bring to light the problems and give a historical context for those problems, but also like situate our practice right here and now today. So for those of us who are yoga practitioners and teachers, we could start to broaden what we think of as, as practicing yoga and expand our practice out to be available to others. And then for people who are curious about practice to be like, oh yeah, this is for me too. So that leads to my next question perfectly, which is how to honor rather than appropriate yoga. Because now this is very far gone. It's no different than mm -hmm. white supremacy. It's like asking a fish, how's the water? You don't, fish doesn't know how the water is because the fish is living in the water. Fish doesn't know that there's even water there. David mm -hmm. Sedaris, the best, one of the best essays ever. How do we honor yoga rather than appropriate it? What is the first, in, in your experience, what is the first way that we can embrace yoga's roots right now? Mm. 
I mean, I think the very first thing I think about this a lot is for those who are listening, right? We're probably your community, Elena, my community people are going to listen to this podcast. We love yoga. We're here because it's moved us and that yoga has changed our lives. And some many of us are teachers of yoga and share this because we like get want to give from the overflow. And so one I think is like always being in relationship to yoga itself as students, as practitioners first and being in that relationship to our deep sadhana, to our practice first before we go out and share or teach. Because really, truly, a lot of the appropriation happens in, you know, the rush to kind of that that um, intersection of capitalism and commercialism and all of the norms, all of the isms, like needing to look a certain way or have a certain kind of body type or, you know, put on like bring people to the studio or to the class to make it fancy or better or trendier. And truly, it's like when we're in relationship with yoga and deep relationship, the practice is enough. We don't need to add on bells and whistles and make it any more, you know, whatever it is than than what it is. So coming back to the heart of the practice, I think, is the first way. And then for those who are not from the culture from which yoga comes, is being in relationship with the culture that yoga comes from. So, you know, we're understanding that yoga was developed in the Indus Valley and the Saraswati River Valley, probably sometime between 5000 and 2500 BCE. So it's been practiced for thousands of years, primarily by, you know, South Asian folks. And um, back then, you know, they wouldn't have called themselves any kind of regional identity, but by folks who were practicing close to the earth, who were looking around at the world around them and saying, what, what is the purpose of life and how do I become more in harmony and balance with what's around me? So earth, water, you know, prithvi, jal, agni, fire, vayu, air, akash, space. And it's like those same inquiries we can bring into our lives today. How can we be more in harmony and in balance with the world around us, the elements around us and within us? And for many of those early yoga practitioners, and this is, you know, we know from Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, what's written down are the ethical codes, like the yamas and the niyamas. And the very first of the yamas is ahimsa, is non-harm. And that is a call to self-sovereignty, to self-control, to self-awareness. And the beginning of that practice is often very personal, but very quickly leads us to understanding that part of our commitment to ahimsa, to yoga, is to not just care for ourselves and non-harm to ourselves, but interrupting harm around us, in the world around us. So all other beings have the opportunity to experience yoga. And I think that's the second way, which is a little bit more, it's like that next step from the personal practice and being in relationship with the culture from which yoga comes is how can we truly make yoga more accessible and attainable and create non-harm and interrupt harm where we find it. And all of that uh, is, to me, it's like a very immediate call. And, and 
everything in our world, like you mentioned, white supremacy and all of all of the things that are just so up for us um, as I think just a cultural moment and movement in the pandemic and the pandemic of racism that's been existing in in the West for hundreds of years is like, this is the practice. It's not separate from our lives. It's right here. And every moment we have an opportunity to practice and to go deeper into our practice. Beautifully uh, said. Thank you for that. There's so much to unpack right there. I am on page 12 in your book at the bottom. To take these steps together, you talk about addressing the blocks to unity and the causes of separation by looking deeply at the source of our cultural suffering, which I think mm -hmm. you've just addressed really beautifully, this separation from nature, the separation from the elemental aspects of our very being. You go on further to say that next we will understand separation through reflection, exploring all the ways in which it shows up on our mats, in our studios, our practices, our lives. How do we compare ourselves to other people? How do we consider ourselves superior, even subconsciously? Like, I think we should just stay there, actually, mm -hmm. for the whole thing. But, And then you say we will practice the path of unity as reconnection through action. Okay, Here's the, the sort of comforting part. If you're listening and you're feeling like, oh God, this is too big of a subject and I, I, I can't wrap my head around it. I can't make a difference by myself. You actually can. And here's how. Again, we're at the bottom of page 12 and Embrace Yoga's Roots. We will practice the path of unity as reconnection through action, taking steps toward repair, healing, reparations, unity, living and embracing yoga. Small steps, if you're listening, my listener. Small steps. What are they? honoring some of the texts, studying exactly what it is that your sequence of postures is really leading you toward. Do you happen to know that it's meditation? Do you happen to know that all the postures we do, all of it, is to literally engage the parasympathetic nervous system, this technology, quiet the mind, eventually still the mind so that you can have an experience of insight that's why we're doing all of this. Mm. And so that if you're doing that, my listener, our listener, if you're doing that, guess what? You're going to be a bastion of quietude for someone who's suffering, for someone who, who isn't comfortable, for someone who isn't in the majority as you might be. You become somebody who in some small way provides one little small step, listening, repair, healing, unity. You become that. And finally, you say, Susanna, that we will learn to embody our yoga as liberation. Liberation. That liberation is not more separation, my listener. That liberation is unity with yourself, trusting yourself, and then looking to your neighbor who looks nothing like you, who acts nothing like you, wants to sleep with other sexes than you. And seeing yourself in them too. Mm. I'm so grateful for this book. I've been like grappling with this for a really long time and not knowing how to talk about it. So thank you, Susanna. Mm. You go on to talk about yoga as a framework for social justice. And I think this is so important, obviously. It gives us, literally, in your estimation, it gives us the tools, the framework, and the practices, as you mentioned just now, the sutras, 
to root out separation, oppression, exclusion in the various social structures in which we may find ourselves. Tell me a little bit about how this was revealed to you and how you continue to bring it into your daily work. Yeah. You know, I feel like I've been very lucky and or unlucky, right? Or both. And some folks might might connect to this as like sometimes those areas that are our deepest suffering can be that site of insight and, and liberation, but we don't always know it at the time. And so being born at the time I was born, you know, which was the late 70s and to a British mother and, and an Indian father at a time when that just wasn't happening. You know, people were not like my parents couldn't find anyone to marry them. It took them a year to find someone who would marry them. My mom's family said, we're not going to come to the wedding. And once you get married, you'll have to adopt because you'll be having half breeds and you can't do that. You know, my father's side of the family didn't know actually, because they would have made him come home and get an arranged marriage to an Indian person. And so I came into a world that was full of separation and that never hesitated to remind me of that at every turn, both inside my family and outside in the world around me in, in the UK where I was first growing up. And so because of that, we moved to the US to actually escape a lot of the violence. There was a lot of um, pretty intense violence that sprung up against mixed race and Indian and Pakistani families in the early 80s in in the middle of the, of the UK. And so we moved to LA and we thought, oh, my parents, you know, I didn't have words for it at the time, but this will be a place of inclusion and diversity and acceptance and where a family like ours and our children can grow up and be embraced for who they are. But the truth was that wasn't my experience. I, I moved and then there were still kids who would call us, my brother and I, terrorists or bad guys or make fun of us for our food or our clothing or the things we wore, or the things we did, you know, the like bindi that I would wear or the pujas that we would go to. All of those things were like aspects of difference and not difference, just difference, but like inferiority. And so I really feel like I had a life teaching, like the first two decades of my life was a study in separation, was a study in the opposite of yoga. And even though I lived on a block with all these young boys, mostly white boys who were attacking us verbally, even physically. And I learned how to fight, you know, so when people meet me, they're like, oh my gosh, you're so little. Um, and they, they're surprised because I'm like five foot tall. But um, but I'm I'm tough, you know, I learned to be tough on those streets when I was fighting these these kids. But the problem was the words went inside and I felt less than, I felt inferior, I felt like I wasn't worthy. And so even though I was fighting on the outside, the damage was still being done. And I think later I learned the word for that, which is internalized oppression. I internalized these messages of oppression. And, I, and many folks, maybe folks listening can relate based on gender, right? Based on being women or queer or, you know, whatever our places of difference in terms of power we might have internalized a sense of being less than or not being worthy. And so all of that separation was not just outside me, it was inside me. So where this came from was like, wow, 
I am really suffering. I am suffering and I don't feel like I belong and I don't feel at home, not in the world that I'm in and not even within myself. And it was in that context that I reconnected to yoga because I'd been raised with yogic practices through my family and my father and my aunts and uncles. And I was going through a lot of anxiety in college and um, like it's a tough time for many, many people. And it was for me and having anxiety attacks. And I remember going to one of those like college, uh, like YMCA local yoga classes. And it was one of those magical teachers who I don't remember. This is like in the 90s, right? And they were just so great. They they brought in yoga philosophy. They didn't make us feel like we had to do anything or be super flexible or whatever. And I was in Balasana, in child's pose, and I just had tears falling down my face onto the mat. And I felt at home in my body and in myself. But also, it was like this teacher gave me the the key to reconnect to myself through my own culture and and this practice that was part of my life. Yeah. And so that was the doorway to like, oh, there is a possibility of unity, not just again, outside, but like myself with myself. And I think that was what began the these this exploration. And then going to India, you know, which for me was like a homecoming and exploration and an opportunity to reconnect. Um, but then also spending time studying and practicing with uh, Shankarji, who's my main teacher, who himself was like, he's a Brahmin, you know, Hindu who basically gave up his caste positionality to teach yoga to Dalits and outcast folks in a, a village in Bihar. And so what he, his whole thing is like, these are practices of liberation and they need to be shared with those who need them most. And so the opportunity to study and practice with him then with him saying to me, like, when you go back to the U.S. after I'd been there for a couple of years, is take what I've taught you and share it wherever you can. Share it with whoever you can and make sure that it's not just to the elite. It's not just to, you know, what, to to those who have access, but to those who don't. And so in my case, you know, moving back from India to the U.S., that was teaching yoga to young people, young people who are you know, in court involved or teen parents, it was bringing yoga into the communities in Los Angeles that were the ones that our society was kind of tossing to the side or throwing out. So that was really the beginning of the journey that led to to this work. Wow. <laughs> wow. I, I want to say that I'm so sorry that you had to deal with bullies. I watched bullying happen so many times. In my life, the the guy the guy who made the film Bully mm. was my neighbor, mm. and I watched it. I saw it go down. Wow! Yeah, yeah. He would walk home from school ahead of me, and I saw it a few times. Mm. I saw the film. I nearly fell over. Um, wow! So I get, I I get all of this history now, and I'm really appreciative of your share because now we all can understand where the impetus for all of this comes from. It's not just from nowhere. It's it's really founded right. in your body. Mm. We are seeing a lot of uh, articles. I have one in particular in front of me. I've seen a few um, by Danya Adanaki, I think her name is. 
how appropriation of yoga masks violence. Mm. It's a two-part question. You and I will just unpack this together best we can. One is, can we talk about the word appropriation for a moment? Having been raised uh, in Long Island, New York, where mm. my favorite Halloween costume was a Pocahontas costume, mm. okay, that I've always felt deeply entrenched and embedded that I have definitely had a past life as a Native American human. I don't know if it's a male or a female. Where is the line, Susanna? Where is the line? Because I don't want to cross it anymore. I want to understand what appropriation is and how do we move away from that and into honoring? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. Yes. Um, such an important question. And, you know, cultural appropriation it's important to understand the definition, right? It, and and yet, it, on a very most basic level, it's stealing. It's taking, it's like if I came over to your house, Elena, right? Or anyone who's listening and you had something cute or cool that I really wanted and I walked in and without asking, I just took, and it came from you. It was valuable and meaningful in your culture and your, your family and your traditions. And I took that thing. And then... I used it without asking. I used it for my own gain, my own benefit. Maybe I mass produced it, profited off it. And I never credited you or your people or what you had done to cultivate that thing that was so precious to you, right? So it's like, it's stealing, but it's beyond stealing. It's like stealing and then disrespect at the same time. And I think on a visceral level, you know, many of us have had stuff taken from us, whether it's our ideas or physical things in our lives. Um, it feels bad and it feels bad because it's not okay. You know, it's in direct contradiction to Asteya, to the the practice of non-stealing and also generosity and um, and satya as well, truthfulness. These are like in the, in the yamas of yoga. But the actual definition of cultural appropriation is – it's involved, it involves privilege and power imbalance plus harm to the source culture when we take something from a culture that's not one's own. And that harm can be disrespectful and it can also be material, cultural, financial, economic, social, or spiritual harm. And why that matters, right? Because sometimes I think people are like, well, if this is just part of globalization and what are you saying? Like I, you can't, you know, why are you eating pizza then? Or why do you listen to hip hop or <laughs> these things? It's like, well, it's, it's, not, it's not about just globalization because it's about power. And when we look at power imbalance, really cultural appropriation is a doorway to colonization and empire. And that's where the violence comes in because the very thing that someone from the dominant culture can do with impunity and without being, you know, hurt or harmed, someone from within the culture, when they do it, they are shunned or sidelined or invisibilized or at worst, you know, attacked or even killed. And I'll give a specific example with Kundalini Yoga. Um, Kundalini practitioners often, you know, and you see a lot of white Western practitioners wearing the dastar, the turban, a white turban on, on their heads, but they can take that on and off 
And yet a sick person, S-A-K-H, who the sick religion is a lot of where and sick culture is where kundalini practices have come from and, and originated from and been drawn from, sick folks every year are murdered for wearing the dastar because of of racism and violence against, you know, a sort of a xenophobic perspective that they're the other and also a misunderstanding that Sikh folks are uh, Muslim, which again, you know, even if they were, they still shouldn't be murdered for, for who they are, right? So it's all these layers of the other. And yet someone from the dominant culture, that they can take on and off that turban without any kind of fear of, of harm, and also often don't stand in solidarity with folks who are being, being you know, attacked or marginalized. And just to make this really concrete, when I was a teacher at LA Unified School District, this is like during the Iraq War, my students, I had many students, in fact, even students who weren't mine, who were sick or South Asian, right after the attacks um, on the World Trade Center and um, you know, in 9-11 in New York, they had to come to my classroom for asylum because they were just constantly in the halls of the school being attacked or called terrorist. And so they needed somewhere to go to have a safe space, right? So this filters down in culture. So it's not just about like, oh, I get to do this cool thing or wear, you know, a turban or wear a bindi and now I'm so hip and like, um, trendy and and like avant-garde, which still happens. We still have celebrities doing this and without realizing that the very thing they're doing, you know, other South Asian women or Desi women, including myself, have been attacked or, you know, physically harmed or made fun of for. And so this is why cultural appropriation is an, is an issue is because it's pointing to these deeper fault lines of inequity in our society. I n- I happen to know so many people who fall into this category right now who mm. and this all this is making me terribly uncomfortable um mm. even elders you know much older yeah. than me who are who do actually stand in solidarity with actual sick humans mm. born into the faith but wow the discomfort is palpable um okay so that's noted Yeah. And I just want to say there, it's like when we're allies, like I think of myself as a cis person, right? Like being an ally to trans folks or as a non-black person of color, being an ally to black folks, my allyship, like one, I have to be humble and understand I'm not black, right? And I'm not trans. So I may misunderstand stuff. I may not get stuff, but I need to be in relationship with folks from those communities if I want to understand what they go through and have empathy and compassion and really truly be an ally or an accomplice. And then my allyship and accompliceship, it's not really ever done. You know, it's never like, I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm good. Like I did my part for the black community. No, you know, I'm going to, it's going as long as there's anti-blackness, which I hope we can end in our lifetimes, Elena and everyone listening, but you know, who knows, like as long as that exists, I will commit my life to standing against anti-Blackness and to educating others, my community, South Asian folks, about anti-Blackness in our own spaces. And and so it's sort of that same thing that I would ask of 
of folks who are allies here is like, how can you ally to South Asians in a yoga context? Like we've been sidelined, we've been marginalized. Our culture has been, and the cultural elements of yoga have been marginalized. So what can you do to one, if you are uncomfortable, perhaps it means you've been profiting off or benefiting from our marginalization, right? Our sidelining, our oppression. And then two, like, okay, it's okay to understand that mistakes can be made or harm can be done. Like there's harm everywhere. You know, ahimsa is an ideal. It's not like an absolute. So what can you do to do better and continue to take those steps, those small steps time after time after time? Because that's really what what we can all do. Um, and that's what I do as as someone who works with the areas in which I have privilege is try to continue to show up knowing it won't always be perfect. And very rarely will it be perfect. It'll probably be pretty messy. Right. Terrific. I now understand a little bit more, peeling away the layers. Um, When the discomfort arises, my listener, our listener is now feeling this acutely. They've this person has profited off of yoga for many years. This person mm. has, um, you know, is resonating with what we're saying as a part of their own psyche. Okay. Mm. What comfort, not that we have to comfort them, but I'm just really trying to understand the whole picture. What comfort can we create for the other side? What comfort can we create for folks who've been marginalized all this time while we, in our privilege, dip in and dip out of the cultural mm-hmm. norm of their lifetime. How do we fix this one step at a time? Yeah. I, you know, I think the very first thing is like take some space for holding and being with and journaling and, you know, meditating on that grief because there may be grief there of like, what? You know, why did my teachers not tell me? Why did I not know? Why Why was I exposed to only this like kind of whitewashed, watered down version of yoga? And how did I not realize or know that all these people and all this, this was excluded and left out? And like, that's not right. And the truth is, it's not right, you know? And so taking time to just be with that grief. And then also, If you're in relationship with folks who are working on this stuff too, um, holding space for their grief, right? Like I get people messaging me all the time and please don't do this. So just (laughs) like, Susanna, look at this totally horrible cultural appropriation. It's like, ah, I don't want to, I don't, even though I speak and teach on this, I don't want to on my off time, you know, when I'm playing with my kiddo or like exploring my joy, you know, and play, like, I don't want to have to hold the space for all of that all the time. And so for those who are coming into your awareness around it, like make space for the grief and then maybe speak up, stand up, say something in your local studio or your local community or to a yoga business so we don't have to. You know, when you're ready to move into action, um, and that's why there's that section on reconnection through action, I know not everyone is ready to go there, but you know, and maybe you're in more of a personal inquiry and personal learning that I think that the request really is like, as you move into, to accomplish ship from just allyship is like, act, stand up, speak up, um, 
you know, make, make moves to address these things because, you know, this is why when I run teacher trainings, I run them for very intentionally folks of color and, and center the experience of folks of color and South Asians and other folks of color too, and white folks. And the reason I do that is because, um, one, we're all, yoga came through, uh, to humanity, not like to any one person. It came through and it will continue to come through. And so I ultimately believe everyone deserves and gets to express and explore yoga in their their own lives. And white folks and folks from the dominant culture are going to be teaching and sharing yoga. So why not do it more fully, right? And we're all needed in this party and we're all needed in the revolution. And so you can bring your privilege and your positionality to bear to help create these shifts. And and really concretely, like just to give an example, when I'm just thinking back to a couple years ago, before I wrote the book, before all the racial uprisings happened, I had a colleague, a white colleague, who got invited to do some, you know, like standards work with Yoga Alliance. And they were like, hey, there's no South Asians on this panel. There's no South Asians working on this. And they listed like five uh, South Asians. Can you bring in, they said, I'll work with you, but can you bring in some of these folks? And that was such a powerful moment of allyship that was really taking action to then you know, bring, I was one of those people who got brought in. I never would have been brought in if they hadn't used their positionality to open that door for me and others. And then once I was in the door, I used my position to bring in other South Asians, including some from within India, because I'm working in the West, you know, and so there's different perspectives there. So, so just constantly sort of like looking at where instead of coming from scarcity, being like, all right, I'm here, how can I bring folks with me? And how can I continue to open the door for others? And I think there's like a real, um, a real depth of practice. And again, coming back to what it is to practice yoga, like yoga ethics, like going into our svadhyaya, our self-inquiry, and then, you know, asteya, not from the side of like non-stealing, but from the side of generosity, from the side of practicing uplift. And knowing that by bringing in and collaborating with others, we're not going to lose, right? Like, you as a teacher, I'm talking to like you, Elaine, or me, or any of the folks listening who are teachers, by bringing in other folks who have different backgrounds, different perspectives than us, like we don't lose anything. We just all gain by bringing in more people. And so that's, that's you know, so sort of that first step, which may be uncomfortable. I mean, it took me a shift, honestly, of going from when I saw people doing what I was doing initially, like kind of contracting and be like, oh no, I don't, I, that's my thing. I don't want to share the platform or share the stage. But I learned and really through, through years of one, just kind of coming back to my practice and being like, what is this? This is that small self, that ego self, but also it's white supremacy that teaches us to compete or that there's scarcity. Um, so I have to immediately act to Uplift. So it got to the point, it's changed now, but initially, like a few years ago, maybe again, three, four, five, around that time that I was being brought in and it was new for me, I would see someone else and I would, my first impulse was like 
to protect or keep it for me. And so I knew I had to act, counteract that with action. So if I saw someone doing something I was doing, I would share immediately what they were doing, you know, like, okay, can't be in the, in the contraction. I'm going to expand, share. And over a few years, took maybe two years of doing that, where now I literally don't feel the contraction. I just feel grateful and I feel excited to share what other people are doing. But I, I share my process here to say um, it may not be easy at first. It may be uncomfortable at first. But with practice, it, it can you can grow into, um, into not coming from those kinds of contractive places, but really embodying yoga. You know, for me, that's, that's what it takes to embody yoga. Mm. So... Without us having this conversation initially, I am uh, proud to say that I had this thought several months ago with a dear friend of mine, Nadine McNeil, that I really wanted to co-teach with her, but the time hadn't been right. She's a black mm. woman, Jamaican, amazing. I've known her 20 years. We're like, we love each other so much. It's silly. She tells me recently that she's seeking to do continued education. It's very expensive. She doesn't have the money for it. And I was like, oh, cool. Why don't we co-teach? You hmm. take all the money. If you want to donate some to the free food kitchen or whatever you can in Cape Town. But otherwise, all the money's yours. It just flew out of my mouth like this. Mm. I, it felt so good. It was like the first step of a long line of different actions that I plan to take. And I'm saying all of this out loud because our listener might get inspired to do something similar mm. for a friend of color, a marginalized friend of any kind. Offer your platform mm. to share it with that person that you're thinking about or persons. Do it ongoing even as a as a as a practice, as Susanna said, as a part of your yearly offerings and enjoy being a part of the solution. Mm. That's one concrete way. I mean, it's happening right now. I'm going to be, I'm going to be co-teaching with her in a few weeks. Um, I'm, I'm on page 105. It's one thing that I don't want to forget to talk about for our white listener, white centering. Mm. I want to make sure that we, we identify this, we define it, we take all the lead out of it and just know what it is. White centering is an idea that whiteness is normal, hmm. that whiteness is typical and right and expected, as you say at the bottom of page 105. That's white centering. It's hmm. nothing else. White is normal. Okay, guess what? White is not normal. Everybody is normal, every color, every race, and the verification needed for how you were raised to think about race, for how your parents talked about race. Bless them if they spoke openly and inclusively. But if they didn't, this is where you begin in the uncomfortable place of verifying the fact that you have actually presumed that whiteness is normal. Mm. And it's okay. It's not normal. Now we learn otherwise. Now we learn that this culture that centers whiteness is actually the exact opposite of yoga. Mm. 
you go on to say that we see white centering when uh, studio owners hire mostly white teachers, spotlight mm-hmm. them as experts, <laughs> use white students in their marketing materials. I mean, what? White centering happens when groups claim to be creating the first quote unquote yoga renaissance when actually that renaissance happened time and again during South Asian history. White centering also happens when a person of color brings up a cultural issue and a group of white people makes the issue about them. Here's an example. You've heard white people responding to Indians raising concerns about appropriation by saying, oh, well, I've studied in India and my Indian friend says, or, quote, I love India. There's no way I could be appropriating. Or, quote, I have over 5,000 hours of training. Okay, this is important, guys. It's really, really uncomfortable. But the truth is, we have centered whiteness in a tradition that has been practiced (laughs) indigenously by brown people. How about that? Hmm. Wow. It erases the many folks from India and other brown and black folks who've taught and practiced yoga for centuries. It's time for us to stop for a moment and really consider how we can serve here. I will never stop thanking you for this understanding, for this education, mm-hmm. and for the, you know, it doesn't feel bad. That's the funny part. It feels like an opening. Mm-hmm. I don't feel guilty. I don't feel like, oh, woe is me. I did such a bad thing because that's also, by the way, white centering. Mm. It's, I feel like we have an opportunity now to do the right thing Mm. with the rest of our lives. And that's what I plan to do. If you had to offer our listener one other issue or question or inquiry that we haven't touched on, there's so much more in this book, but I don't want to keep you what would you say? What would be what would be the 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 last word if you could for now? I, I'm sure we'll be meeting again here. Yeah, you know, I think a lot about as you're you're doing this work, you know, you Elena, and then other folks who are listening is like be in relationship, right? Like be in relationship with folks from whom the culture has come, and we're building a relationship and deepening in our relationship. Even though I've known you for years and have loved to take classes with you, Elena, you know, over over the years of my practice, and so it may be reaching out or connecting with people in your community or or in your world who have been there but you haven't deepened with, and then also. Um, making sure that as you do it, you're, you're asking them. So not making us, you know, South Asians or folks of color, like a charity project, not tokenizing, which is kind of in the next couple pages after what what you just read. Um, Not so much like making us a a charity project or because that's still white center, right? But really saying um, how, or what is alive for you. And I I think the thing I'd want to leave people with is like the alternative to appropriation and so many of these issues is truly creativity. And it's generative, just like yoga is generative. It's joyful. It's 
positive. It's life affirming. And so instead of stealing or taking from other cultures because of some lack, how can we go into our own cultural roots, our own heritage? Because we all have culture, including white folks, right? Like the idea that whiteness is, you know, invisible or white folks don't have culture, like that's part of uh, that's part of white supremacy too. It actually harms everyone because everyone comes from somewhere and has a relationship to the land and, you know, cultural practices. So going back into where you've come from, exploring creatively, and then creating space for the people in your life, especially as you're building relationship across difference, for, for those folks to show up in their fullness, in their creativity. And so maybe going in and being like, hey, what's alive for you? And how can I support you? And like, you know, let's do this collaboration, but you can kind of guide it. And so it's almost like um, instead of uh, giving people the mic, it's like giving up the mic or sharing the mic, but but ha- taking a step back. And and I kind of liken it to in the practice, you know, and, and I'm just kind of centering in my own body and like leaning forward and then leaning back. It's like, how can we lean back? How can we lean back a little bit and drop the urgency and lean back on the roots, lean back on the practice of yoga and trust ourselves and this practice to guide us. So that's what I'd close with. Beautiful, thoughtful. Uh, I have a highlighter in my mind over the word generative, creative, Mm. uh, sharing, not charity. Yeah. It's really important. Thank you for that distinction. I look forward to more with you. I do have a sense that we need to do something else together. I don't know what it is yet, but we will figure this out. Um, I'm so thankful for all of the years of endurance, for your generosity, for your care of the whole community in writing this book. That's basically what you've done is cared about the whole community mm-hmm. and living, living your teaching as I tap on the cover the book. You live this. I thank you for that. Thank you for that. Thank you. And thanks for sharing this space. And, you know, to all of the folks who are exploring and practicing, like there's room for all of us, right? Mm. We get, And we really are the ones. Think about this so much. Like no one can be the expert in what it means to, to honor yoga. We have to come to that through critical inquiry and self-trust in relationship to the practice. So that's that's also my wish is that, you know, for everyone to learn and deepen and continue this work because we're all needed in this work. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. More soon. Be well. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. 
My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.